Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Barrett, Secretary General of the International Federation on Aging, or IFAA, an international non-governmental organization that works with the United Nations and its agencies. Jane was born in Western Australia, lives in Canada, graduated from the University of Surrey with a master's degree in medical sociology, before going on to complete a doctorate in demography and population studies. Since then, she's had an extremely impressive career across the United Kingdom, Australia and Canada, where she's now based in Toronto, in academia and then business development in several national and international non-profit organizations. Jane is a Winston Churchill Fellow and recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in Canada in recognition of her commitment and passion to enhance the understanding of issues related to ageing, as well as her work in the private and public sectors to improve the quality of life of elderly people. As if all of that wasn't enough, Jane is also a member of Vision Academy, the Director of Baycrest Health Sciences and Chair of the Education Advisory Committee, to mention just a few of her current positions. Having spoken to Jane, she is a live wire with a fantastic personality, and I shouldn't be surprised that she's got two English staffies named Lenny and Billy. Why? Because anyone who is a dog person is all right by me. It's a total honor to have her on the podcast with us today, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion and eager to learn more about the world of public policy in the sphere she operates. So welcome to the EMJ podcast, Dr. Jane Barrett. And thank you very much, Jonathan Sakia. It's a pleasure to be with you and, uh, and your listeners today. Fantastic. So let's dig right in. You've described population aging and disability as your passions. What inspired you to focus your career in this manner? You know, it's very odd that um, anybody would actually think of population and disability as passions, isn't it? Look, it came, I think, from my childhood. You know, my brother was born with Eisenmenger syndrome uh, because my mum uh, at that time, 1959, vaccines were not available for rubella. And so Paul was born with uh, this congenital heart defect. And it was from that time that I really sort of leaned to the area of really understanding human beings, frailty, independence from birth to death. And so this this whole notion of population ageing, we start ageing at birth and all the way through to our passing, really is born out of my close and loving relationship with my brother Paul, who um, he was the longest survivor of Eisenmenger syndrome until he received a heart double lung transplant and survived another seven years. So this whole area of ageing, disability, functional functional ability really revolves around family relationships. So that's where it was born and, and to this very day, I love the work that I do. For the benefit of uh, listeners, I mean, my, my grasp of many conditions is in the dim and di- distant recesses of my brain. But as I recall, Eisenmenger's syndrome is there's a problem with blood flow um, from the heart and the lungs, and you end up with sort of stiffened vessels and poor lung function. Is that correct? Look, that's, that's absolutely right, Jonathan. 
you know, Paul was not able to walk to the letterbox and back without being a shade of blue. Um, so, you know, he lived a very full life and really that's where my love of learning and ageing and disability came from. And, you know, as I was reading about your work preparing for this, it caused me to think about ageing. I mean, all of us have got uh, aged relatives, hopefully, and I think about my late maternal grandmother and grandfather, who I love dearly, and they were together for 60-odd years. They were mischievous and funny, and although they were, you know, obviously they were in, well into their 90s when they passed, I could see them in my mind's eye as teenagers, but very often older people are perceived as being somewhat different, and maybe that's a cultural thing in, in Western society that we don't treat older people or people in wheelchairs or whatever it might be as being somehow the same as us. Is that fair comment? Mm, we're really fixated in this world with age, aren't we? We we often ask, well, how old are you? Oh, you, do, you don't look that old. Oh, you look older, don't you? If we took age out of the conversation about life, then, you know, you're... Um, relatives in their older age would just be very funny, intelligent, mischievous people. But we'd like to put this label, you know, on whether we're young or old or middle age. It seems to define many people. Often people say to me, what are you going to do when you stop, you know, at IFA, which happens this Friday, actually. And what I say is I'm going to be irresponsible for a while. And you know, I think what we're trying to do in this world is define people by certain categories and ageing is one of them. I think if we took age out of the conversation, we'd understand that we're really talking about people and varying levels of function and in, in independence, etc. And how do we create the environment that enables somebody to do what they have reason to value, whether they're 5, 55, 75, 95? Yeah. Very much so. Well, I've always, uh, I've always welcomed the presence of older people because of the, the wealth of experience they have. A friend of mine, he was a patient many years ago, and he died recently. He was in, I think, 103, and he was still a total joy to go out to dinner with. He was a, a judge, and he a wealth of stories. And yeah, okay, look, um, tell us about some of the main areas in which the quality of life of older people is lacking. Some will be obvious, some may not be. You know, Jonathan, I think when we think about older people growing older, we've got to look at the person and the environment in which they live. And I, I said a phrase just in the last conversation, how do we create an environment that enables an older person to do what they have reason to value? And so when we're thinking about quality of life in the latter half of life, we think about significant high capacity declining capacity, significant loss of capacity. And so, you know, to to live a quality of life, we need to actually maintain and improve our function to the extent possible. And how do we do that? Well, many of us have access to certain services, but there is an increasing inequity in the access to services and the ability to pay for those services, which impacts an older person's life. It's not how long you live, it's the quality of life you live. So there's no point in living to 103 or 90 or 70 if you have a miserable quality of life. 
you know, isolated, lonely, marginalised and not able to live that life that you want. And so we're really looking at the contextual framework of growing older now, and that is the interaction between the person and the environment. And we know, you know, very well from studies from WHO and others, you know, that this whole notion of ageism actually decreases the life expectancy of a person. We know that loneliness impacts, you know, life expectancy and quality of life. We haven't quite worked out how to create interventions to maintain and improve our quality of life, particularly when we're thinking about marginalisation, isolation and loneliness. So I heard it mentioned that loneliness, maybe it was in the Blue Zone book, that loneliness is equivalent to smoking, I don't know, 10 cigarettes a day and that, you know, at times of the year like Christmas or other holidays or, or anniversaries, if people are no longer with the person that that memorialises, that causes depression with all its all its downsides. And the Blue Zones book, don't they? They, they talk about exactly this health span, not just lifespan, a mental health span. And one of the key things is human companionship how important that is, right? Yes, but also having a purpose. If you think about the Okinawan studies, you know, one of the key elements, key factors for longevity, you know, is having a purpose. You know, there is value in getting out of bed in the morning. We don't place enough emphasis on this, you know, what is it that gives me purpose to get up in the morning? Trends across the world now, um, and in England, I don't know whether you still have this, but the Minister for Loneliness. So when did we get to the situation that we actually need a ministerial office responsible for loneliness? What's happened in our society that gets us to that place? Um, And it's something that we need to really look at within society and within ourselves. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, recently, someone <laughs> bought me a book called Ikigai. It's about this Japanese philosopher and it, philosophy, and it talks about Okinawa and this concept of a life lived with purpose and passion. And boy, it resonated with me. It really, it's, it's like the other thing about you know someone saying, well, "When are you going to retire?" And the answer should be, "Retire from what? If I love what I'm doing." You know, you never work a day in your life. Now, that may come across as rather elitist. Uh, there are people who don't get to do what they love, but maybe maybe it's even just something as simple as going for lovely walks in nature or reading books, a life lived with purpose. I love that. So you've mentioned a minister for loneliness. What an awful concept. How are we doing as a society otherwise regarding the standard of care for the elderly and current ideas surrounding good practices? And what have you seen change during your, your very extensive career? Jonathan, we're doing it badly. And I say that because we've only got to go back four years and look at, in retrospect, look at the brutal exposure that we saw in COVID. You know, you look at the highest mortality rates by population and they were older people older people living in residential care, nursing homes. And so we've got to ask ourselves why that happened. And it's not only because this was a high-risk population. It happened in 
many in most countries around the world. And it's because we haven't invested as a society or governments, you know, in the systems of care and support for older people, you know, throughout different functional trajectories. So that's on the downside. You know, on the upside, you know, you've just got to look at some of the Scandinavian countries to see that there is a thoughtful approach to ageing and to death. You know, Denmark is a very good example where you have policies on reablement. And what that means is that, you know, to be able to access services in the home, you know, there's a process of assessment for rehabilitation. So this important notion of incentives to maintain and improve function versus incentives for dependency. So, you know, that's an important model that's gaining traction around the world. But then we actually need to go to, you know, you've mentioned, um, you know, your work in Asia, you know, China, Japan, India. And in these countries, we're looking at a different structure of family. But the nature and form of family is changing in those countries as well. And so not only do we see joint family care, but we also see hybrid models because younger people, you know, are migrating to countries like Canada and, and England and Australia. And so the whole familial structure of care is changing. So what we can say is that there are pockets of some very good models and we have some pockets of very poor services and structure. But it does come back to not the expectations of populations, but when and how do governments invest in, you know, this latter half of one's life? And I think that's a real policy position that many governments haven't actually secured. We still, for many countries, live in the sickness model. You know, we don't orientate our healthcare funds to promotion and prevention. You don't often hear about, you know, increases in GDP for health promotion and prevention. It's really a decrease. So we have a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of promising practices and there are some which require urgent attention now. I mean, I know that there have been, you know, you'll hear a sporadic thing like, uh, oh, utilising retired teachers um, to get involved in doing education to help uh, kids who are struggling or kids who are underprivileged or are cared for children, foster children, or, or um, you know, an initiative I've been involved with here in Britain, providing care for patients who are medically fit for discharge um, but can't go home. And then people who are retired carers or doctors or nurses opening their home and bringing patients in. There are many, many ways we can do things and just be, I think it all comes down, frankly, to being kinder, wouldn't it? Now, there's a crazy thought. That was about a minister for kindness instead of a minister for loneliness. I would add minister for grace and gratitude and kindness. Gratitude and kindness would go a long way in our society. I think, Jonathan, we've also got to recognise that the, the gap between the rich and the poor, bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, in Toronto this morning, I can say that there were many hundreds of people, older women, older men, living on the streets. You know, so there is an increase in the older homeless population. 
you know, older prisoners, older migrants, older refugees, older women, um, and they are not within the mainstream of services or the mainstream of kindness. You know, we tend to walk past those populations, don't we, instead of, you know, meeting them at their place. Um, and so a kinder society is one that we should aim for. But you look at the geopolitical tensions that we live in in this world today. And so where does the conversation about older people and health promotion and prevention but also gratitude and kindness comes in? You know, it's a, it's a long way from policy priorities. Well, tell us a little bit about the work that you do with the International Federation on Ageing. The IFA's vision is a world of healthy older people whose rights are protected and respected. Um, and that seems to be a very lofty vision. And yet it's not really. You know, what we do is we bring unlike together to develop common agendas that we can influence and shape policy. And we work at this intersection. So let me give you some examples. You know, we're involved in working to improve uptake rates of adult vaccination, you know, for the last decade or more. And so our work is around vaccination, healthy ageing, long-term care policies. So we try and actually bring together disciplines from, from various sectors. So in this whole area of adult vaccination, we have diabetologists at the table, we have cardiologists, we have patient groups because it's about trying to understand a common agenda. Another area is vision health, um, hearing, so vision, hearing, cognition. So we're really trying to challenge, you know, the um, contemporary views of siloed, you know, interventions. So we look at access to treatment, access to assessment. But at the heart of this is how do we create this environment that enables an older person to do what they have reason to value. So if we can improve access to assessment for um, hearing, the likelihood is that there could be an intervention, a treatment or an assistive device so that they'll be able to communicate in the community and won't feel isolated. So it sounds simple. It's very complicated because it means that people have got to talk with one another They've got to sit down and they've got to debate and agree to disagree on ways forward, which brings different disciplines and sectors together. Um, so influencing and helping to shape policy to improve the lives of older people, that's what we do. Oh, wonderful work. And it, it throws up a, a, a billion other questions. But um, I want to come back to something you said earlier. You talked about COVID and how it impacted the lives of older people. Um, and, you know, as we know, loneliness, isolation were thrown into sharp relief. And I actually just want to give a call out to EMJ, who who hosts this podcast. You know, I've, I've done a bunch of work with them uh, on their advisory board. And during COVID, they set up a check system. And because I'm the, the doctor, if you will, involved with the organization, I was the one people would come to should they have medical questions or concerns, not as their doctor, but as someone who hopefully knows a bit about medicine. But the number of phone calls that I got from the young people who worked at the company, because I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm one of the grown-ups, 
Um, the number of them that phoned just to say, we know you live on your own, Jonathan, are you okay? And boy, did it touch me. So for those of you who are listening, big shout out to you, your superstars. Uh, again, kindness. But I'd like to ask you two questions. How has COVID-19 impacted the lives of older people and the action that you're taking in order to combat aspects of this, things, lessons learned, if you will, for the next one that comes along? And secondly, you mentioned adult vaccination. And we know that vaccine denial um, is, is, is an issue. It's a big issue in certain population groups. What's it like in, in amongst older people? Yeah, I think they're, they're two very important questions. Let me start with the first one. Um, this was the pandemic that we knew was going to happen, and yet there was no country in the world that was prepared. And Canada wasn't either, even though we had been at the pointy end of SARS some years before. And so we weren't prepared, and and because of that, our public health messaging generally was confused, sometimes poor, and guess what? Many of us went to Dr. Google, you know, unreliable, and yet, you know, was a source of information. You know, how did it impact? You know, many older people are still waiting for appointments. Um, elected surgery, still, you know, there are still big catch-ups. If we think about those um, older people with AMD, age macular disease or diabetic retinopathy, then we know that because of COVID and shutdown, there have been advances in their disease, which they will never get back. They will never get that vision back. So they were the, the immediate. And of course, you've mentioned, you know, the incredible loneliness and also fear about this virus and the unknown because it was a very unpredictable virus in many respects. You know, some people seemed to have very mild symptoms. Some people ended up in ICU. You know, there was, you know, also confusion about, you know, whether someone was eligible or not. So we still live in this fear of uncertainty in terms of, for some people, vaccines and the confusion of, I'm up to number five, do I need another one, etc. So we've got that happening and we're still in a rehabilitation phase of that. In terms of the denial aspect, you know, I think there will always be some populations, Jonathan, that de deny the value of vaccines. But what we do know is that we have an increasing high-risk population uh, that every year are likely to require you know, a vaccine for COVID, the flu, some for pneumo, we've got RSV, and also we've got shingles. So our work in adult vaccination is to try and understand the pathway that's the easiest one for an older person to access um, the vaccine. And of course, in many countries, pharmacists are you know, the key administrator of, of vaccines. So we do a lot of work in public health messaging, in pathways, um, in improving the composition of the National Immunisation Technical Advisory Groups, the NITAGs. So we've got a lot of work to do, um, but, you know, it's gradually changing. Well, it's fascinating stuff. And for those who aren't familiar, RSV is a respiratory syncytial virus, I believe. 
Um, so, and shingles is something that certainly merits vaccination. You know, it can help. It's a wretched, wretched condition. My late granddad had it and it was, um, gosh, the pain he suffered was awful. So, uh, I've, Jane, I've been fortunate to travel extensively. And in some countries like China, older people are venerated and cared for, yet not patronized. You've previously spoken about, you, you mentioned earlier about successful programs concerning care for older adults in places like Norway and Ireland. What, what makes these programs so effective, in your opinion? How could they set an example or gold standard for the rest of us? Or, simply put, are there cultural barriers to such programs being accepted and acceptable in, in more countries? The way that I see ageing is that we view it through two lenses, through culture and through gender. And because of the differences in an impact of both of these variants on our population ageing, you know, what we know is that in countries that see ageing as the natural process and uh, starting from birth, you know, you will see that there are services and programs that support you know, functional ability across that life course. And that's where you see in Norway, in Denmark, in Sweden, you know, there's a heavy emphasis on action, activity, exercise, part of healthy living. And I think that's not the same in many countries. I think we've also got to acknowledge that we've got something called climate change, you know, which is certainly impacting you know, um, the healthy ageing policies and increasingly we'll see that. You mentioned China and people being venerated and cared for and not patronised, and that's quite correct. But I think that the, the sands are shifting also. I mentioned that the nature and form of family is changing and so is the cultural norms. Um, and we will see that, you know, in China, in many countries in, in, across Asia with migration and urbanisation. We've mentioned vaccination. I want to come back to that. You recently co-authored a publication entitled Driving the Life Course Approach to Vaccination Through the Lens of Key Global Agendas and Describe Intersecting Goals and Visions of Global Strategic Agendas, Identifying Specific Areas of Overlap. Can you summarise this work? I can in very short, short shift. We need to be talking with one another. You know, WHO works in silos as many government ministries. So my belief, our belief at IFA is that the decade of healthy ageing agenda is linked to the immunisation agenda 2030. And that agenda is also linked to the global roadmap on meningitis. So I can make an argument to actually have a pull through around population ageing across all of these intergovernmental agendas. What we all want to do, Jonathan, is we want to grow older in good health. That's what we want to do. And I see that by having separate and, and discrete governmental agendas, we miss the opportunity of collaboration and partnership. Talking about interconnectedness makes eminent sense, but the problem is that you have people who have, you know, their agenda becomes personal. It's not an altruistic action. It's protecting, 
you know, it's turf battles. I always thought when I was involved in medical politics through medical societies that sometimes it was just much better to ask for forgiveness than permission if you wanted to get things done. You know, if you don't want to be judged uh, or, or, or do things on a sort of glacial timescale. I'm always concerned when I see social policies rolled out for a group, one group or another, that absolutely reek that there's been no input from those it's meant to serve. Surely it's just as important for older people to be involved in the creation of programs, policies to improve quality of life for this population, for older people. What what, what are your thoughts? Oh, look, yes, yes and yes. But look, not if it's tokenism, Jonathan. Yeah. It is an absolute waste of time and energy to have, you know, an expert committee and, oh, well, we need an older person, a younger person, a black person, a white person. You know, this is craziness. I'm with you. What we need is the right people in the right seats. But more importantly, we actually need them to be able to agree to disagree in an open and safe environment of dialogue where the end game is positive change. That's it. It's not rocket science. This is actually very simple. So put the egos at the door, leave the baggage out there, come into the room and move forward with the common agenda. Look, I entirely agree, you know, with the notion, and I say notion particularly, of older people being part of policy development and evolution. But one person does not reflect the population. And so if we're really serious about this, then do the consultation. But don't do the consultation with only those that are going to do the survey. Perhaps we've got some issues with health literacy. Guess what? Not everybody has the same level of health literacy. So if we're really serious about policy development that is centred with and around older people, then take the time, energy and invest in it rather than this notion of we've got everybody at the table. That's not, and very, very few policy developments is with people, older people at the heart of it. We have a long way to go there. And just on that, I have to say, there is nothing that is more cringeworthy when I hear a minister, policymaker, academic saying, leave no one behind. We are leaving older people behind every minute of the day because of the actions or inactions of policy and practice. You know what they say, everything you say is uh, absolutely screams of common sense. And, you know, the one thing about common sense is it's not common. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, Jane, you you work largely in policy and academia, but how can rank and file clinicians, practicing healthcare workers, frankly, all of us, uh, instead of just relying on policymakers, What can we do to improve the quality of life for older people in the community? There's a GP pal of mine who uh, dedicates a big chunk of his time to being what people call a horse and buggy doctor, just popping in to see his older patients to see how they're doing. And I would say when I was practicing, I I ceased practicing a number of years ago to do other things in medicine. But when I would go and do a home visit, I always loved it. Patients 
parents were happy to see you. You know, if they were older people who couldn't make it into uh, into the office to see me after a major operation, I loved going to see them in their home. It was, it was probably more rewarding for me than it was for them. But what can all of us do? Because we can all do something, right? Listen. Just listen. Many years ago, I said to a, an elderly gentleman, you know, what's the one thing that would change your life? And he said, if people could just speak more slowly and more loud. That's it. That's it. And I think, you know, in listening, people tell a story. Our lives are just one big story, many different chapters. And taking that time to listen and pause and allow them to tell their story, we gain a lot more insights as to some of the challenges, but also what they want in their future. Um, and I must, I must tell you this very brief story. My dad was in the hospice um, some years ago. He was very, he knew exactly what was going on. And I walked in, he had a pillow over his head. And I said, oh, for goodness sake, can't you do better than that? And he laughed and he said, well, I've, 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 I've held my breath and that doesn't work. And it's this conversation of what do you want to happen? And through the course of that day, there was a plan put in place. And so it's really giving people that time to tell their story and being kind and listening to them because we gain more from that than anything else. Yeah, makes perfect uh, perfect sense. Again, I'm thinking back to my late dad who was hard of hearing and he didn't particularly use his hearing aid um, uh, and he said, you know, I'd use it if I thought people had anything interesting to say. So, I, Jane, it's a question I like to ask all my guests. If a genie were to grant you three wishes in your field of healthcare, the, the field that you work in, looking after the needs of older people, what wishes might you have? Jonathan, it's far more than three wishes. But let me start by saying that healthcare professionals to be bold, courageous, and be disruptive in their policy development. Second, you know, for everyone, regardless of... Um, who they are and where they live, to have access, you know, to assessments and treatment. And the third is to enable people to live in the community with sufficient services. And should they need to go into some residential care, that it's of high quality. Love it. Well, again, having <clears throat> um, gone through that experience with my late mum, I'm with you on that last one for sure. Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Jane Barrett for being with us. Jane, total pleasure talking to you, and I hope this is going to be the first of many conversations you and I have. And also, I do too. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for your time today. Welcome. So, folks, uh, please check out our archives, subscribe so you never miss an episode, tell your friends, like us on social media, anything you can think of so that more people get to hear fascinating guests like uh, Dr. Jane Barrett. And please join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackyer, and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please, everyone, stay safe, stay well, stay curious, and be kind. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.